And now, if you're able, please stand with me, and we'll be reading today from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And this is the word of the Lord. Be to God. And thank you, Steve. Joy to serve with you and Melinda. And as Steve is the chairman of our board, I get to spend lots of time with him, which is uh, all my gain and all his loss. So thank you, Steve. You know, if you're walking around New England in the year 1900, you could go to just about any one of those little schools and pluck out a child at random, say a third grader, and you say, Young man, do you know your Decalogue? And that boy would have said, Well, absolutely I do. And he would have said this, Thou shalt have no more gods but me, before no idol bend thy knee. Take not the name of God in vain, dare not the Sabbath day profane. Give both thy parents honor due, take heed that thou no murder do. Abstain from words and deeds unclean, steal not, thou though be poor and mean. Make not a willful lie, nor love it. What is thy neighbor's, dare not covet. I said, of course I know the Decalogue. Because in the New England primer, right after the alphabet, you have the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments encapsulate what we would often 
define as matters of conscience, that is, to the degree that we're just born in the world with some of this inbuilt program by our Creator, say this is the place to which we go. It is the very foundation of what it means to be one of God's followers. You think when the man comes to Jesus, what does it mean to follow you? And he says, love God and love your neighbor. You look at the Ten Commandments, well, the first four, to love God, and the subsequent six, to love your neighbor. And it's the foundation for God's people. It's also, dare I say, the foundation of good government. That modern, Western, liberal, lowercase l democracies, you say at the heart of this is what? A protection of life and a protection of property. Say every advanced civilization needs that. The Ten Commandments, we do well. Say now I think under probably even 10% of Christians could name the Ten Commandments, let alone say where they are in Scripture and their purpose. And so we do well to study them to know them, to teach them diligently to our children and to recognize their great importance for being right with God and being his people. And so that is what we'll do the next uh, weeks. Ian uh, got us off to a wonderful start last week. We'll look at a commandment a week up until Easter, and hopefully as a church family we can know them and, of course, live them out and be able to articulate why they're important. So before we get into the second commandment today, verses 4 to 6 of chapter 20, I'd like to begin with a few preface comments. It's one of those where you just feel the weight as a, as a pastor to say, I really am going to repeat myself here because I think it's that important. And if I don't get this across, I'll feel like I'm failing you. And so uh, here it is, preface comment number one, very crucially. Look back at the book of Exodus, the whole thing, just the general story. What you're going to notice is that it moves from redemption to law. It's not as if the Israelites were better looking than the other ancient Near Eastern peoples, or that they were smarter, or more numerous, or that there was anything in them that said, you know, we deserve to be redeemed and liberated from slavery, and all these other groups don't. There was nothing inherently good in them. But God redeems them. He redeems them. Why does he do that? Out of an act of grace, out of keeping his promise. He says, I'm going to Right? Remember back with Abraham, I'm going to call the people to myself. They're going to be, I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people, and they're going to represent me, and I'm going to deliver them on account of my grace. And that's exactly what he does, right? He reaches down. Remember, it looks like a, a hopeless situation because it is. There's nothing Israel can do to extricate themselves uh, from being hemmed in by the Egyptians. We can't toughen up. Uh, you know, do, do this behavior, not that behavior. So they're not going to redeem themselves from enslavery, but God reaches down and miraculously pulls them out through the sea. It's not as if those million Jewish folks said, well, look at our faith, it's superior. To, you know, aren't, aren't we great, faithful people? No. God said, you're my people, and I'm your God, and I've redeemed you, and I've brought you through. Then, and only then, does he give the law. It moves from redemption to law, that the law then is outlining how God's people are to live in light of being redeemed. So you say, what's the big deal about this? You have to see that this goes against the grain of our fallen nature and against the grain of all other world religions, right? Because here's how we think. I think there might be a God out there. Tell me what I need to do, right? The world religions say, give me the law and allow me to try to do the law on my own. And if I do the law well enough, and I can always look over at some chap in Avon who's a worse, you know, a worse fellow than I am, and I say, well, <laughs> that guy's out and I'm in, and as long as I do the, then, then I can be redeemed. They say, no, no, no. The Bible's very clear. All of the hearts of all creatures are bent away from God, that we're all crooked, the crooked timber of humanity, as Isaiah Berlin would say. 
And we need the grace of God to rescue us. And this is the great news of the gospel, right? That this is the same pattern of the gospel. Remember, the Bible's all one story. So Exodus, right? Redemption, then law. In Jesus, right? God, in his grace, puts forth Jesus. And in light of surrendering to Jesus, then we see, oh, now, by the power of his spirit, might I obey and be his people to reflect his good character. So again, I stress to you that the Bible moves in the direction of redemption and law, then law. All other world religions and the inclinations of our heart want law in hopes of redemption. Say, that's enslaving. We never know if we're arrived. Leads to the comparison game. No, it's by the grace of God. And in light of being redeemed, he then says, these are my boundaries, so how you can be my people and be a light to the nation. So that's preface comment one. Preface comment number two. When people think of laws, as we'll be studying in the rest of the book of Exodus, you say a rule book. A lot of people say, oh, I don't need to be a Christian. I don't need all those rules. They're saying something about their understanding, a very shallow view of any kind of uh, legislation or laws. Because obviously, just random uh, bits of commands out there, floating out there to make life miserable for people. It's how they view laws. They're just all these things to do, and they're so onerous. But laws always say something about the character of the lawgiver, and inevitably will shape the hearts of the people. So uh, you can take some simple examples. I don't, I don't think that this is that profound when you think about it, but you, you, you know, I read a humorous story this week. I'm reading about the Occupy Wall Street movement. You remember that anti-capitalistic movement? They were staying out on the park in New York, and I, I didn't realize till this, there was a major divide in the Occupy Wall Street movement. And you say, well, what was the divide over? The divide was over uh, how widely marijuana could be smoked. You see, one half of the Occupy Wall Street movement said this, we all know we're doing this because we're anarchists and we're libertarians and we want to do whatever we want. That's why we're down here in the park. So if we want to be high all the time and do drugs all the time, that's exactly what we're going to do. The other half said, well, no, that's, that's not why we're here. This is serious business. We're trying to, we want to be a socialist society. We got to be, get our acts together. We got to have clear heads. And so what I'm saying is the, the quote, the, the rules are, are into, integral to what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, the, the utterance from on high will shape the people. So I see some young people today, so I'll speak somewhat obliquely, but I remember, you know, went to non-Christian colleges all my life, and you go in as a freshman, and you're sitting there in the student affairs talk, and, you know, you're 18-year-old guy, and then you hear, well, any of you, you know, if you need free prophylactics, this is where you find them. And you think that little utterance, what does it do? It tells you what the administration thinks about that act, it tells you that it's expected of you as an 18-year-old person. You say that one little utterance, you could look at it and say, well, that's kind of weird. You know, there's prophylactics available for free. There's a whole lot smuggled into that. And so when we see God's law, to think, well, it comes from a gracious and kind and true lawgiver, the heart of a loving and gracious God, that's going to shape the hearts of his people in such a way where we're going to flourish and where he's going to get glory. And so you see, with law, we can even see law as an act of God's grace. His law is an act of his grace. It flows out of his character. So none of us, right, that we're not anti-law in the sense, right, the New Testament, we have to be subtle there, what's happening there. As Ian said last week, the law can't inherently make us follow the laws. It reveals our sins, so the law is good in that sense. It's a reflection of God's good character, and it reveals, it exposes our heart for the sinful creatures that we are. And so those are the preface comments. Bible moves from redemption to law, not law, then redemption. That's enslaving. And then secondly, laws are an outpouring of God's gracious character that's going to uh, ultimately allow us to be the people that he wants us to be. So shall we turn our attention then 
the commandment number two, four to six. And before we get there, you're probably wondering, you say, aren't commandments one and two a lot alike? Commandment one, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me, and then commandment two, don't make carved images. You say, there's a little bit of an overlap there, and this is how I think about this. Um, greatly influenced by, by Luther, the reformer. Luther said, I think this is profound. He says, you can't, in his treatise on good works, he says, you can't break commandments two through 10 without first breaking the first commandment. That the first commandment's like a heading, you shall have no other gods before me. So if you think about what Luther's saying, if we steal something, they say, I want that, uh, what I've done is I've made some other object or thing uh, the, the source of my security in, in a way that I've made the object that I've stole like my little God. Um, you know, if I, if I commit adultery, then I'm subject that I've allowed my lust to break my covenant with Mallory, that that uh, lustful desire uh, for pleasure has become my God. So I think Luther's right, that the first commandment, as Ian said, there, you shall have no other gods before me, is the carnal, there, there is one God and there is one God only, and, and uh, anything else that we do is sinful really violates that commandment, and out of that flows the subsequent nine commandments. What is clear then, is that commandments number one and two, if I were to summarize the two of them together in bold heading one in your notes, there's a worship gap between God's people and the rest of the world. That what we worship as members of Providence Church looks fundamentally different from what a non-Christian will do with his or her life. Now, worship gap. And you're looking now with me. You're say four. I say, I, I can't believe, I can't believe we're talking about idols right now. Uh, you know, of all the problems I got in the world, this guy's going to talk about little graven images. So I just want to say there's, I think, two major fallacies that we tend to commit. So fallacy number one is this. Idolatry is not a problem in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio in 2022. And not one of you going to go back to your little room and you say you, you, you know, you got your little clay figurine and you're going to go bow down to that. I would guess that's, that's a very, it's not a temptation for you today. Uh, so what does this have to do with us? And I say, just a little bit ironic, the way that this hit. You say, while you might be going there, you say, what are we all going to be doing? And what is that, you know, about 10, 10 o'clock tonight, including me? You say, do we have that picture? Oh, there it is. <laughs> say, a bunch of grown men would be lifting up an image and kissing it and rubbing it on their faces, and millions and millions of people will be cheering and say, well, we're not, we're not bowing down to any images. And by the way, I'm for the Super Bowl. I, I moved my small group for the Super Bowl. Jeremy Damster will never, <laughs> never forgive me. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna cheerfully watch the Super Bowl. I'm just making the point. You say, well, that, this, watch how religious it is tonight. Just watch what they do. You say, this looks like, there's parts of it that look very much like I would imagine a pagan festival. So the point I made is I think there, there, are, there are idols in our lives. And, and then here's the, the real kicker is that Romans 1, feeding on this will tell us that, that idols really are the places that we find security and hope and where we channel our energies. That it need not be a clay figurine. That the idols in our lives can be, can be ideas. Or as Romans 1 says, lusts of the heart. You say, you think about that, the lusts of the heart, the wanting to be 
recognized, the wanting for a promotion, the wanting to have sexual conquest, um, whatever it would be, the lusts of the heart can become the chief thing in my life that I live for, that I buy down to, that I'm all consumed, I'm all in for that kind of thing. And if you, put, if, if you permit that definition of idolatry to say it's anything that, that I gravitate towards that gives me security or I long for, that, I, that all that I live, say if that's the case, then we might be the most idolatrous nation that, that's ever lived. Finding security and hope in things other than God. That's, that's what's at stake here. God's saying, don't put other things before me. Don't invent man-made things and bow down to them and look to them for security. So that's fallacy one. Idolatry is alive and well. Fallacy number two. You'd give a whole sermon on this, and I might one day. So-called secular people are non-religious. You say, ever think about that divide, you know, wherever you work, you say, well, you're one of those Christian folks and you worship Jesus and that's uh, weird. I mean, you're religious people over there. I'm a man of science and I don't worship anything. Now you think about that claim for a while and you read the headlines as I do. I want you to think about these. I, I, two, two movements in the modern era that really formally kicked out God. I mean, formally said God's not a part of the system. Uh, the two, and they cast a long shadow, uh, the, the, the French Revolution being one. And you think of Madame Roland, who was a leading revolutionary. And then she, uh, at the end, is rounded up and taken to the guillotine. And Madame Roland, in her last words, looks up to the sky and says, Liberty, what crimes have been committed in your name? And I think that we've always taken that line to say, Liberty had become the God. You kick God out, Liberty's become the God, and look at where it gets us the guillotine. The other movement, communist Russia, Bolshevik revolution, and I find it very enlightening. I draw on this compendium of essays a lot. A famous defector of communism by the name of Arthur Kessler. Kessler and six other communist defectors uh, write about their experience in communism. And the name, the, the English title of that compendium of essays, you ready for this? The God That Failed. Say Kessler, not particularly Christian, he said the problem was we made communism our God. Say, God, no thanks, communism, so liberty can be the God, communism can be the God. How about one of my personal favorites, Harold Bloom, Harold Bloom, the great literary critic, who I happen to really enjoy reading. I mean, one of these guys that seems to read every piece of classic literature, I really like Harold Bloom, disagree with Harold Bloom when he said this, there is no God but God, and his name is William Shakespeare. For Bloom, Shakespeare was God. How about in our own time? read an essay this week from the New York Times by a girl named Lee Stein. Maybe some of you know her, L-E-I-G-H, Lee Stein. Do read it. It's, she's not a Christian. It's well worth Googling. Lee Stein, The Empty Religions of Instagram is the title of the essay. The Empty Religions of Instagram. And listen to what she writes. Left-wing secular millennials may follow politics devoutly. Interesting word, right? Say devoutly. It sounds like a religious term. But the women we've chosen as our moral leaders aren't challenging us to the fundamental questions that leaders of faith have been wrestling with for thousands of years. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? What should we believe in beyond the limits of our own puny selfhood? And then she goes on to say, there's a chasm between the vast scope of our needs and what influencers right, can provide. We're looking for guidance in the wrong places. Instead of helping us to engage with our most important questions, our screens might be distracting us from them then this is gold, friends. I didn't write this. This is, this is past, Pastor Gold. Ready? Maybe we actually need to go to something like church. <laughs> Say, 
what Lee Stein is saying, and it is a sad commentary from a young lady, a young, smart lady. What she's saying is, we've turned our attention to so-called influencers who talk about the self. And our self has become our God. And when we make ourselves our gods, it's very empty and it's very lonely. And so all this business about the people at Providence Church being religious and the non-believing world being non-religious is patently false. And you see it every day in the press. And quite frankly, those who are intellectually honest know it. Communism can be a god. Liberty can be a god. Money can be a god. The only question is they make very bad gods and end up eating you, eating you alive. So beyond this, so idolatry alive and well, we all worship something. Nothing is going to fill. Nothing's going to fill the whole of what we want to worship. The things that we tend to worship don't love us and certainly can't fill us. Now, what else about this second commandment? You shall not make for yourself a carved image. This is so significant. Why? Because every other ancient Near Eastern religion uh, had idols. It was very odd not to have an idol. I mean, you go now and talk to any biblical archaeologist. I mean, they're always finding these, these types of things and Asherah, you know, little Asherah figurines, Canaanite goddess figurines, you know, bull figurines of Baal and so forth. So every other ancient Near Eastern religion had this, and here we have the command to God, you're gonna, my people are gonna be really different. I mean, it, it's gonna be night and day. Yahweh doesn't have an icon. You can tell I'm very, very Puritan in the taste of Providence Church, deliberately, right? You say, it's, say we, we don't worship Yahweh with images. All other ancient Near Eastern religions did, and it's easy to see why, right? Because what is a carved image? It's a way of controlling your God. You say, well, of course they don't exist, so what they do is they say, well, make a little figurine, they make God in their image, and they say what he does, and you can kind of bring that God, you know, Baal or Asherah or Moloch, and you bring him down and do, say, this is my God, I can control him, and I've made this God in my image, and there, he, you know, there that God is. And so it's a localized, diminished version of a God. Now, why is this so crucial in light of our faith? Because the God of the Bible instructs us appropriately and logically. He says, look, those gods are brought down, made in the image of humans, and they don't speak. The God of the Bible can never be localized, and he does speak. We have a speaking God who can't be localized. He can't be brought down and say, oh, look, I've, you know, you could imagine a guy, you know, he chops down a tree and half the tree's going to his firewood and half the tree's going to making, making his icon. You say, how defeating that must be, and let alone that God doesn't speak. God says, I can't be, I can't be made in your image. You say, no, I can't be confined, but I do speak. And I guide because I'm infinite. I'm on the outside coming down. You say, the same thing is at play today. You notice how people say things like, um, you know, I, I like to think of God as a, as a mother, say, for example, very popular now. Say, I don't want to think of God as a father. I want to think of God as a mother. So you don't have that luxury when you believe in a speaking God who's self-disclosed. You have that luxury in, in religions where you have icons. All you have to do is make your icon in the form of that you want it. You make it in your image. You make it the way you want it, and the God does what you want it to do. God says, no, I can't. I'm going to self-disclose to you who I am. Say, I can't. Think of God as mother any more than I can reinvent any of you. Say, oh, I like to think of, you know, Vic as this. Say, no, Vic's there. He's a person. 
And that's what God's given us. So think of this line, Deuteronomy 4, very enlightening. For what great nation is there, the people ask, that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? So once again, statues made in human images, they don't speak. The true God can't possibly be confined to being made by us, but he does speak. It's a world of difference, and he's given us his word. The point here, Christians, Christians, Jews and Christians have lived differently. Now, I'm going to hit this many times over the next couple decades, so bear with me. We've had the luxury of having a lot of overlap between our culture and our faith for many generations in America. That's not going to be the case. So the people of Providence Church are going to have to think carefully about this because the distinctives are going to be more and more sharp as we go forward. Say, I don't think it's going to be that long. You know, as people driving by our church, whispering back to their kids, you see those people in there? They think Jesus is king. Those people at Providence Church think you come into the world a sinner, and you need to be saved to be right with God, whatever that means. You know those people over at Providence? They think, they think a man and a woman should be married their whole lives. And you know what they do? They actually like when the church has children. And the women in their church actually give birth to the children. They don't use artificial wombs. They believe there's such a thing as a woman. They, they believe the gender is binary. You say, I don't think that day is that far away. And so the question is, if you're operating on the mold of 1950s America, you say, I'm feeling a bit jarred. But if you're operating out of the biblical mold, something like the second commandment, or maybe closer to home, the early church, you say, actually, I delight in this. God's people have always been distinct. We've been distinct in our sexual ethics and in our priorities and in our worship allegiance. But we know that God's good law is for our good and for his glory, and so we carry it out in obedience. So the point that I've tried to make in the second commandment, there's a big worship gap between God's people and the way that the world worships. Everybody worships something, so will we submit ourselves to God and what he wants us to do and obey him? Now, secondly, oh my goodness, I am way behind here. What we worship, uh, what we worship has consequences. You see it here with the language of it going on for generations and generations, uh, that, that, that God will visit iniquity upon each and every generation. You say, well, do, does what I worship actually have consequences? You say, absolutely. You think of the example in 1 Kings chapter 18, right, where Elisha and the, uh, the prophets of God and the prophets of Baal are duking it out, and the prophets of Baal are trying to get their God's attention. What do they start to do? They start to beat themselves, and the blood flows into the street. You say, well, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? You say, well, not really. You think of our current climate of identity politics where little pockets of people become the God. You're at each other's throat and you go around hating people and you, know, you get up in arms about that. You say, it's kind of eating us, eating us away, isn't it? You say, what happens when our bodies become our gods and sexuality becomes our gods? You say, well, we wouldn't resort to anything like you know, self-harm, would we? You say, well, no, but you've got the top physicians at our so-called top universities advocating for the mutilation of healthy organs of our young people. You say, when we worship identity politics or our bodies or sex, that those things will erode us because that's not how we were made. 
that we were made to be in line with our creator, and he's given us the boundaries by which we might flourish and we might reflect him. And that's why I think, if this is true, to say if we worship the wrong thing, then it's going to dehumanize us. If that's true, we can start to understand that language in verse 5 about God being jealous. Some of you say, well, that's exactly why I don't like God's jealous, jealousy is a terrible feeling to have. It's, it's petty and childish. Say, it comes out of the context of marriage. That the Bible would say, when God says, I'll be your God and you'll be my people, it's like a, a, the, the illustration we get is one of a marriage. It, so we shouldn't be surprised that God is jealous in the same way we'd say, well, uh, uh, it makes sense that a husband would be jealous of his wife in that sense. That's part of what it means to be married. That you wouldn't want one's wife going around with others. That's part of what a marriage is. So God's saying, look, I'm, I'm jealous for my people. I've given you the parameters because you go out worship this other stuff. It's going to eat you alive. What we worship has real consequences. And we'll feel very empty and very unloved and very lonely if we trace that path. And maybe you're here today. You know, maybe you're here today and you said, you know, I, I'm really struggling with this. I've been worshiping the wrong things. Okay, there's going to be good news in the last point because the last point, of course, is that, well, there is an appropriate object of worship, and that is what God has done in Jesus. You go around to college campuses and you you know, talking to young people, and I always ask the question, say something like this, is there anything that could be presented to you, hypothetically, anything that could be presented to you that would make you think about becoming a Christian? And inevitably, they'll talk about something detectable. They'll say, well, if only God would do a, a great work of power that I could see him or something like that. And I say, that's, that's, that's great news because that's exactly the claim. God put forth Jesus in history. He put him out there as a Galilean carpenter to work amongst us, to gather a people to himself, that the church, it would be described as his body, that God raised him from the, the dead and he stands bodily at the right hand of the Father. So you want a visual? There's the Lord Jesus. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God put forth Jesus. You say you want an object to worship? You say the Son of God come, his body beaten and broken for us. You say there, there's who we worship. That's how we get right with God. That's where our hearts are filled. You know, that last line, in Jesus all things hold together. <laughs> Again, maybe today you're thinking, you say, my life, not much is holding together. My personal relationships are a mess. I've got constant conflict at work. I've got no peace. I'm up during the nights because I can't settle. My life is disintegrating. Say, if only I had a different place to put and fix my eyes. Say, there is the Lord Jesus, the image of the invisible God, and in him all things hold together. That the closer we get to Jesus, the more integrated and whole and restful our lives will be. Friends, I, again, this topic, would love to say more. Here's the point again. There's a worship gap between what we worship and what non-Christians worship. Everybody worships something. We worship the true God. What we worship is going to have real consequences in our lives. And only by worshiping what God has done in Jesus can we be right with him. And if you're on the quest to say, well, I don't know, God's just an idea, to say, no, I can't go there. That's not the claim. The claim that God has sent his son 
bruised and bloodied and beaten for us. And so what I'll do is I'll invite the team back up, I'll pray, and then we'll celebrate this in the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for this word. When we tend to look over idols and say, oh man, carved images, I got more important things to focus on. But help us to see that we're, we're idol factories, that we're always chasing after ideas or lusts of the heart or some place to channel our energies or to find our security. And if that's the case, Lord, help us to confess it for what it is, that it's idolatry. Help us to see, Lord, that when we worship fallen things, things invented by men or gods and made in your image, that those things will, will, will tear us apart. Help us to have open and honest conversations when opportunities come with friends and colleagues about this to say, well, you know, could it be that we're channeling our attentions in the wrong way? And thank you most of all, Lord, for putting forth Jesus, the image, the image of the invisible Father, that there is an image and he lives on high with you. So we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. You know, most of the time we read the gospel in God's word or we hear it preached as we have today. At the Lord's Supper, what we actually get is we get it uh, demonstrated uh, through the body and blood of Jesus. You know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he instituted the Lord's Supper, and I find it marvelous no matter where you go in the world, what denomination of Christian you have, every Christian takes the Lord's Supper, that it's a visible, uh, a tangible way. Think of what we've been talking about today. It's a tangible way of saying, oh yes, that is what Jesus has done. That is what God did in Jesus to reconcile me to him, that I can worship him. So if you would, get out your communion cup. And before we take the Lord's Supper, we're told that we don't want to take it in an unworthy manner. And what that means for Christians, uh, communion is something that Christians do, those who've surrendered to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so what we'll do, uh, members of Providence Church, followers of Jesus, is we'll take a moment to confess our sins. That if you're like me, you think back at this last week, I wasn't the perfect husband or the perfect son or the perfect father or the perfect parishioner or the perfect pastor or, or any category you can think of. And so what we'll do now is take a moment to confess our sins before the perfect creator as, as his creature. So if you would, in, in your heart, confess to him. Aren't we thankful that we have a father who forgives his children, who assures us of his pardon through Jesus? Not only do we confess, but we think about the room that God in his good time has had brothers and sisters, his elect, gathered in this space so that we might link arms, so that we might encourage each other in the faith. And so we do this together, that there is one body, and so that as the church that we would be unified and also, as we're told, as we go forth, that we proclaim this truth to all who are in our path. So if you would, pull back your first tab and take out the bread. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Church family, the body of Christ broken for us.
if you could pull back the second tab. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, the blood of Christ spilled for sinners like us, the cleansing blood of Christ. We take it together. Father, we do thank you for renewing us inwardly and spiritually, that we do have a right place for our worship, and that's what you've done in Jesus. Help us to see how we're aligned with you in that, then we can flourish and bring you glory. Have your way in our church family. May many come to know you. May Christ be lifted high in his name.